Matthew chapter 21, and start reading in verse 1. Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth, from Nazareth of Galilee. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this wonderful service, the good music we've had this morning, and just the sweet time of of uh, being with God's people. But I pray now that our minds and our hearts would be united around your word. I pray, Lord, you'd fill me with your spirit and help me now to have nothing in my life that would hinder uh, the ability to accurately and truthfully preach the word. And I pray that all of us would, would listen and concentrate. I pray there'd be no distraction and that you would speak to us today. Teach us, Lord, from this wonderful historical event uh, some truths that apply to that, but also that apply yet to a future event. And I'll thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, probably you have some idea why we consider Palm Sunday such a big deal. And we do consider it a big deal around here. If you, if you remember this church, you know that uh, this was no different than other times. We like to wave palm leaves around and we like, to, we like to make it a celebration on Palm Sunday. Because every year on this particular day, we pause to contemplate a historical event, the entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. But we also are clear to point out that not only is it a historical event that we're talking about when we talk about Palm Sunday, but we're also talking about its prophetic implications, and there are prophetic implications. You see, Jesus came once. He's also going to come again. He came first to save his people from their sins. He will come again to establish an everlasting kingdom. He came first to demonstrate the Father's love for us. He will come again to demonstrate the Father's justice. And so we remember the day that he rode into Jerusalem. And we contemplate the day when he will part the skies and return again. What a day that will be. Phil talked about it this morning in his Sunday school class. Now, since we do talk about it every year, perhaps you're familiar with the details, and we won't spend a lot of time on exactly what happened, but there may be some here today who are not totally familiar with it, and so let me just, let me just uh, examine the record just for a second. Let's just to make sure we understand what exactly happened on this day in history. And what happened was simply this. Jesus, in direct fulfillment of prophecy, rode into the city of Jerusalem atop a donkey. If the Lord wills, those of us who are going to visit Jerusalem in another few months will see right where we believe this took place. Jesus was openly and blatantly claiming to be the fulfillment of prophecies. He was openly saying to the people that he was their king. We don't have to read much further to find out that they rejected their king, do we? That they refused his reign and that rather than lift him up on a throne, they lifted him up on a cross. 
And as a result of that, in that rejection, a thing called the times of the Gentiles were ushered in. A period in history where God has temporarily set aside his people Israel in favor of uh, the Gentile world, to great benefit of the Gentile world. Eventually the Bible says that Israel will once again look upon him whom they pierced, and they will turn to their Messiah again. But in the meantime, multiplied millions of Gentiles pour into the kingdom of God. That's the historical, that's what happened in the historical event we call Palm Sunday. It's not just a picturesque Sunday school story. It was a pivotal moment in history, an important, important time. Well worth our attention on this special day. But as we consider it, we dare not forget that it also has prophetic implications. And so this morning, I want us to think about not only the fact of what what took place that day, but what it pictures for what's going to take place in that coming day. And we're not going to look so much at these verses that I read. Don't you love it when I do that? We're not going to look so much at the verses I read. We're going to circle out around them a little bit. and We're going to look at the ones all around them because the, the bookends, the things that took place on either end of this actual ride in, I think, teach us some wonderful things about when Jesus comes again. When he came this time and when he comes again. Three things I see. First of all, when Jesus came, he saved those who recognized him. He saved those who recognized him. Of course, they had to recognize him in the first place. It kind of presupposes that, doesn't it? They had to recognize him. And all of you right here are probably thinking to yourself, I just read the story. And there was multiplied people there that were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Obviously, preacher, they recognized him. But I would suggest to you that they really didn't. Verses 8 through 11 would seem to indicate it. A very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It would seem like they recognized him. But we also know if we read just a little bit further. In just a few days, those cries of Hosanna turned to crucify him. And those same ones who had apparently proclaimed him king, they had said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They had called him the son of David, which is a clear indication that they were considering him the Messiah. Uh, those same ones would soon be saying, we have no king but Caesar. And so they would turn on him. So we have to assume that some in that crowd, perhaps most in that crowd, didn't really recognize him for who he was at all. They probably almost certainly recognized that he was a direct fulfillment of prophecy at that particular moment. They knew that prophecy. They knew their Messiah was supposed to come riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. They saw this person coming and therefore they recognized the fulfillment of prophecy. But I would suggest to you that they were just intrigued by the facts. They were just intrigued by what they were seeing. And they weren't paying attention to the import to their own lives. Last Palm Sunday we preached out of this same passage. And we spent... Most of our time on verse number five, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you. And we spend most of our time on that word, your, your king. This was personal, personal. He was their king. Each one of them should have been thinking of him as my king. But I would suggest to you that they did not. They did not. And so the majority of these people didn't recognize him. Same thing happens today. The same thing is true today. Perhaps even in this very room this morning, it's true today. People are intrigued by the historical Jesus. They're intrigued by the stories of his life, fascinated by them even. Maybe they're instructed by the way he lived and died. But, but as he passes them by, they don't connect the dots to see that he's their king. He's my king. 
They don't think about all the Bible says and how it has personal import to them, how it demands a personal response from them. Is that you this morning? Is that you? As in your mind's eye, you watch Jesus riding into Jerusalem as you hear the crowd shouting, Hosanna. As you see the joyous faces paving the king's paths with palm branches and articles of clothing. Do you recognize him? Do you see that he is your king? Do you see that he is your Messiah? Do you see that he alone can save you? Not many that day did. Some did. Some did, though. And for that, I want us to go back just one page in your Bible. And I want you to notice that there were some who recognized. Let's go back a few verses to the previous chapter and start reading in verse number 29. Let's read about a couple. Now, as they went out of Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the road, when they heard that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. They recognized him the same way. Then the multitude warned them that they should be quiet, but they cried out all the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, son of David. So Jesus stood still and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Isn't it amazing that many with perfectly good eyesight did not recognize who Jesus was, but here was two blind men who recognized perfectly who he was. The parallel passage in Mark chapter 10 shed some interesting light on this because the parallel passage tells us who, who one of the guys was. It names one of the blind men Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus knew it was not enough for Jesus to simply pass by. Bartimaeus knew it was not enough for him and his blind companion to watch him pass by and then sit there and discuss what a great example he had been as he passed by. They knew they needed something from this son of David. They were blind. They needed to be able to see. They needed something from me. I always wonder if John Newton had these guys in mind when he wrote, I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. Because blindness is used in the Bible to discuss, to describe our condition before we come to Christ. All who are apart from Christ are described as blind in the Bible. Second Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 4 says, Whose minds the God of this age has blinded who do not believe. Unless the light of the glorious, of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on him. They knew who he was. They knew what that meant to them personally. And they also knew that they needed to do something about it now because he was passing by and would not be passing by again. And as a result, he saved them. Just as he saved all who recognized him. And just as he saves all who recognize him now and will until the day that he comes again. So the first thing that happened when Jesus came and the first thing that we see here today is that he saved those who recognized him. The second, go back to Matthew chapter 21 again. And let's read a little bit past where we stopped. Let's go to verse number 12. Verse number 12. Okay, he has now ridden into the city. He's, the shouts of Hosanna are done. Verse number 12, then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house should be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. The second thing I want to suggest this morning, when Jesus came, he cleaned things up. He cleaned things up. 
He walked into the temple and he tossed them out. He cleansed the temple. Now that first time it was just a token cleansing, wasn't it? He cleansed the temple. But the fact is there remained lots of dirt in this world. And there remains today lots of dirt in this world. But when he comes that next time, he's going to clean things up. I should be able to get an amen out of that, shouldn't I? He's going to clean things up when he comes the next time. You know, there's going to be a day, and I don't know about you, but I can't hardly watch the news anymore without wanting to vomit. We're probably the same way. And there's going to come a day when that will be over because he's going to clean things up. I love Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11 is one of the most beautiful passages of the Bible. Let me just read you a few verses of it. It says, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's what it will be like when he comes back. He is going to clean things up. There will be judgment. There will be justice. He will clean things up. I remember when I was a child attending school. I remember that every morning we had to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. Do they still do that in school? We did. We had to recite the Pledge of Allegiance. You know there's a line in the Pledge of Allegiance which claims that America provides liberty and justice for all. Of course, as we grow older, we learn some things, don't we? And we learn that no country provides justice for all. I love America. But the fact is there's plenty of injustice around us, is there not? There's plenty of injustice in this land and in every land. And the fact is, this world is just simply unjust. But when Jesus comes back, there will be judgment. He's going to clean it up. There will be justice for all. No political leader can promise that today. Elections are coming up. We're looking forward to elections. As a proud American, I plan to vote. I plan to cast my votes, and you should too. But I have no illusions that any leader on this earth is going to clean things up. I have no illusions that any Supreme Court ruling is going to change anything. Only Jesus, only Jesus is going to clean things up. And he's going to do that when he comes back. You know, in Mark's gospel, there's some additional detail. This this triumphant entry into Jerusalem is mentioned in all the gospels. But in Mark's, he adds some, something that's interesting. And you can read that on your own. It's Mark chapter 11. But if you read you'll, that narrative, you'll see that he, he, he tells us some additional things. He says that Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he went to the temple that night. And because it was late, he didn't do anything else there. He, uh, he went out to Bethany. And then the next day he came in. And the next day is when what Matthew is describing here took place with the cleansing of the temple. But as Mark describes that, there's something in, in chapter 11 and verse 11 of Mark, which I think is interesting. He said, Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Did you catch that little phrase? When he had looked around 
at all things. Now, why is that in our Bible? Why is that there? Jesus went into the temple. He's, he's coming in now. Uh, his triumphant entry is over. The shouts of Hosanna are done. He enters into the temple and says he looked around at all things. Now, if you believe as I do, and you should because I'm correct. If you believe as I do that every word of the Bible is inspired by God, then there's some reason God wanted that in there. He looked around at all things. And I think he's just simply saying this. When he comes back, he will see all. When he comes back, nothing will escape his gaze. He will examine all. He will look at all things. In John chapter 12 and verse 31, and these words were spoken right after he rode into Jerusalem, right after his entry, he said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. When Jesus came, he cleaned things up. When he comes again, he's going to clean things up. How does that make you feel? How does it make you feel? He's going to clean things up. If you, like many in that crowd uh, there, found Jesus an interesting example, but, uh, but you ultimately reject his claims on your life, it ought to make you nervous. It ought to make you nervous. Because according to my Bible, the same broom that he's sweeping everything up is going to sweep you away as well if you don't know him as your Savior. But if you, like blind Bartimaeus, have recognized that he is your Savior, your Lord, if you have called out like these blind men, have mercy on me, then you can rejoice and look forward to that glorious day. You know, we who believe look forward to that day of reckoning. And we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. He cleaned things up. And finally, number three. Look at verse 14 of Matthew 21. Verse 14. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When Jesus came the first time, he made things whole. He healed them. That's another phrase we might just pass right over and not think much about. But it's, it, it, that would be a mistake. The fact is, when Jesus comes back, he will make all things whole. He will heal all our diseases. He will remove all our pain. He will re- eradicate all our infirmities. Don't you look forward to that day? Our sister Connie this morning is sitting in a, I can, I'm pretty sure I know exactly where she's sitting in her home in an easy chair, unable to hardly move because she's in pain from a surgery that she's recovering from. Our sister Sandy Gentilly is at home this morning recovering from surgery that she had just yesterday morning. Our sister Phyllis is at home recovering. And we could go on, could we not? Those of you who attend Wednesday night services here know that we have a long list, almost seemingly never-ending list, of people who have infirmities and problems and needs and hurts and trials. But when Jesus comes back, he's going to make all things whole. He's going to heal and take care of all those things. He made all things whole. Well, so three things. When Jesus came the first time, he saved those who recognized him. He cleaned things up and he made things And I would suggest to you when he comes the next time, which could be any minute now, he's going to do the same thing. He's going to save those who have recognized him. He's going to clean things up. He's going to make things whole. I wonder this morning, do you recognize him? Do you recognize him? Can you look forward with longing and hope for the day when he's going to clean up this world? Can you look forward to that or does it make you nervous? Oh, if you know Jesus as your Savior. You can rejoice and look forward to that. There's one last thing that took place in this kind of general uh, bunch of things that took place as he entered the sea. I, w- I want to share it with you. And you might think as we read this that you don't understand how it fits, but maybe I can make it clear. Look at verse 18. 
This is one of those stories in your Bible that when you read it, it just kind of glares at you. Verse number 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the road, he came to it and found nothing on it but leaves and said to it, let no fruit grow on you ever again. And immediately the fig tree withered away. Now, I suppose there's all kinds of things we could say about that story. Isn't that a strange story in the Bible? Don't you, when you read that, you think, wait a minute, what is that doing there? Here we have all this, all this wonderful story of Jesus coming in and being declared. Here he is cursing a fig tree. What in the world does that have to do with anything else? And we might ask ourselves, why would Jesus, this one who heals all our diseases, this one who makes all things whole, why would he curse this poor defenseless fig tree? What did the fig tree ever do to him? What was his problem? Would not we be tempted to say that? Matter of fact, if you go over to, uh, where is it, Mark's gospel, I think, Mark adds an important detail. He says it was not the time for figs. Well, now, wait a minute now. This is Jesus. He... He created that fig tree. Shouldn't he know it's not the right season for it to be bearing figs? But he goes to it. He expects to find figs on it. There's no figs on it, so he curses it and it withers away. Doesn't that story just kind of jar in your brain? It does in mine. But I think there's a very simple explanation of the event. There's all kinds of things we could say about it, but I think there's a very simple explanation, at least in the context we're looking at today, and that is this. Jesus had come and time was up. If there weren't any figs by now, there were never going to be any figs. Time was up. You know, Luke tells us that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he says he wept over the city. He wept because they had not recognized the opportunity, and time was up. It was decision time, and far too many of them had not recognized him. Far too many of them had allowed the opportunity to pass until it was too late. The whole narrative of the poem of Palm Sunday. Described in all four Gospels, that whole narrative is a historical fact. It happened. Jesus did indeed ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey on that day. He did indeed present himself as king, and he was indeed rejected. But it's not only a a historical narrative, it's also prophetic. It not only tells us what did happen, but it foreshadows what will happen. He came, and he is coming again. He came once. And he will come a second time. And when he comes back, time will be up. The clock will have run down. There will be no further opportunity to recognize him and respond to his offer. And so I close this morning with this thought. If you, if you have not responded to that thought, to that offer, your king riding by, be like blind Bartimaeus today. Call out to him and say, Lord, have mercy on me so that you too, you too can be saved. Call out for that saving grace and do it now because once he passes mine, the opportunity's over.